Um, but go ahead and, and grab those books. There's no way I'm covering everything in them. My, my goal is not even to really teach according to what's in those, but I wanted to teach this series to make those books available to you because I think they're really good at both communicating the doctrines in some depth, which I don't have time for uh, in, the, in my teaching time, but also connecting to the historical um, nature of the Reformation and, and how that still matters today. Uh, so what I think I'm going to do next week, I'm just kind of priming, priming you so, so you can be ready for those of you that like to, to read ahead. I think what I'm going to do next week is go ahead and teach the doctrine of faith alone. And then the following week, take on grace and faith together and why those things still matter today. Because really grace and faith are, are, are two sides of the same coin, right? They, they often find themselves where we'll even look today in Ephesians chapter two, that they find themselves paired together. And so I think that's one of the places that I'll save one week is uh, just do the two doctrines back to back and then, and then in three weeks um, talk about why these things mattered then and why they still matter today together. I think we'll be able to do, to do them justice, but not nearly as well as those authors who have spent years and years researching and writing about these subjects will have done in those books. Uh, so buy those books and don't be intimidated by them. Some of you have come and said, I don't know that I can make my way through this. Sure you can. Read, read a page a day, right? Even if you just read a page a day, you'll finish it in less than a year. That's fine. Uh, read a chapter a week. Set yourself a goal and, and, uh, and do that. Also, um, just as a matter of prayer, uh, I invite you to, to pray for me, but more importantly, pray for the family uh, many of you probably remember the McKay family who were a part of our church for several years. In conversation with them this week, I found out uh, their first Sunday here was in 2015 when I preached in view of a call. Uh, it was, they had never been to our church before and they came the very first the Sunday that our congregation was considering me to be the lead pastor. And uh, they didn't leave until the Navy moved them to Gainesville and they're now in the Jacksonville area. But we've been praying for them as a family for a while as last year, Connor who was 11 at the time, was diagnosed with uh, an inoperable brain tumor. And as you have, if you are aware of that family, you probably know, at the end of January, I believe it was on January 31st, uh, Connor went on to be with the Lord, was able over the 10 months that he had this diagnosis and was battling um, this, this cancer to, uh, to really be a testimony of faith in that community. Well, they asked me to come to Florida to preach the funeral for Connor. Um, and there was just absolutely no way I could say no to that. Uh, and so that, that is tomorrow afternoon. And so I'll be flying out early tomorrow morning to head down to Jacksonville. They're, they're anticipating, as often is with um, when a young person loses their life, they're, they're anticipating a very large crowd. He played football and they're talking to me this week about all of these, fo these you know, peewee football teams and middle school age kids and their families that are going to be there. And so I hope to be able to provide some uh, comfort and hope. The family's doing really well as I talk to them. I mean, just their, their faith and trust in the Lord has been strengthened through this. And so praise God for that. Uh, but their desire is that uh, what is likely to be hundreds of people that are show up to this funeral uh, get to hear a, a, of the goodness of God, even in the midst of, of, this, uh, of this tragedy of a 12-year-old losing his life. And so would you just pray for me as I... Uh, 
as I preach that and pray for Sean and Brittany and for Hannah, their daughter, um, and the rest of their family, kind of as we go through that day tomorrow. And um, they, have, they have experienced, there's so many people in our church over the last year that has done, have done stuff for them. And even since Connor's passing, have reached out to them. So uh, this is part of what it means to live in a community that is somewhat transient, is there are times people leave us, not of choice of their own, but they leave us because uh, their job calls them away. Um, but uh, we've done a great job as a church continuing to love that family uh, in the midst of this, uh, so much so that they would ask me to come down and, and uh, preach for this funeral. So I want us to pray together for our night, but I also want to pray for that family and that opportunity to proclaim the gospel tomorrow. So let's pray together. God, I thank you that we can gather together tonight, that we can return now uh, after a few weeks off to our series here through these five solas. Help us, God, to remember, uh, as our subject will be tonight, where where. Uh, our salvation lies is, is uh, because you provided it to us by grace alone, that we didn't earn it, <laughs> that we didn't deserve it, that we weren't born into it, but that you birthed new life in us because of your great mercy and love that you had towards us. We thank you, God, that that was real in uh, Connor's life and that he was able over the last several months to be a living witness uh, to other young people and even to, to the many adults who were watching him uh, who felt helpless uh, to do anything but to pray. Um, and God, as you saw fit, uh, Connor went home to be with you a couple of weeks ago. And we pray, God, that through uh, his life and testimony of faith and even in the way he uh, died well, that... Um, there will be others who are drawn to faith in Jesus because of that testimony. So will you, God, help me to, uh, to proclaim that truth boldly and clearly to people I don't know and will never meet again for most of them this side of eternity. We also pray for his family as they continue to um, uh, walk this road of, new, of life differently now uh, after Connor's passing. Would you, would you bless uh, Sean and Brittany and Hannah? Um, God, in, in, the midst of this, in the midst of this great loss, I thank you for uh, a, a church here and churches in Florida who, who have been an encouragement to them. Would, they, would we continue to be able to do so in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, folks. So the, the doctrine that we approach today is the doctrine of grace alone. This is, we're kind of following a pattern here as we set up back in January that uh, the five solas, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, through Jesus alone, for the glory of God alone. Uh, this, the order of things really matters a little bit as you're talking about them. Um, scripture alone, because it is our source, so that's, it's our source of the information, so that's why it starts. The glory of God alone, because this is why it, all, it is all done for his glory at, at the end. But by grace, through faith in Jesus, I'm, I do it in that order, approach it in that order, primarily because that's the way that we say it, and really Orthodox Christians have said it for centuries. We say this in our uh, core beliefs that, that we are saved by grace through faith and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ alone. That is one of the core beliefs of our church. Uh, and so we want to deal with it kind of in, in that order. And again, these things, particularly grace and faith and even uh, the, in Christ alone, kind of bleed into each other some. I'm going to try to uh, not get ahead of myself, but there will be moments where I, I'll obviously 
Now, we'll do that, and uh, you'll, you'll offer grace to me. I want to first define grace as I am saying it. Uh, and there are a lot of different definitions of grace that you could probably uh, find out there. This is the definition of grace that I gave when I preached from Ephesians chapter 2 some year and a half or so ago now. And I'm, we're going to be talking about Ephesians 2 at length today because it's the best place for us to understand what's really happening with grace. Uh, but when, when we say by grace alone, the word grace needs to be defined for us so we understand what we are saying stands alone in this salvific process. So when I say the word grace, what I'm meaning is God's goodness to those who only deserve punishment. God's goodness to those who only deserve punishment. So if we start at the back of that and move forward, what we understand is uh, the, why we would say grace alone, because we don't deserve God's goodness. You don't deserve God's goodness. I don't deserve God's goodness. There is no one because of our sin, who deserves God's goodness. What we deserve is God's punishment. But grace is the expression of God's goodness to those who don't deserve it. So when we say by grace alone, what we are saying is there is nothing within you that has deserved the goodness of God that he has expressed to you. Now, specifically in salvation, because that's the subject, right? If you'll remember back to our very first week of this, uh, which seems like a while ago now, we recognize that what the whole Reformation debate was over uh, was justification. What is it that makes someone right with God? And what we are saying here, as, we're, as our subject turns to the goodness of God to those who only deserve punishment, is that God did not justify you because of who you are or because of something you have done, that it is not heritage, it is not lineage, it is not nationality, it is not privilege of birth, it is not some type of right standing that you had earned outside of God's simple unmerited favor towards you choosing to show you goodness. This is what we mean when we say that we are saved by grace alone. We are saying that there is not an ounce of our salvation that we deserve. Now, I'm going to use a different word next week when I talk about faith. I'm going to use the word earned because faith really contrasts with works. Grace really contrasts with, our, with who we are, our makeup as a, a person. That there is nothing good about who you are that made God say, hmm, I want to save that one. And sometimes people want to, which is part of the reasons we had Protestant Reformation, because there were people, and still even within the Protestant Reformation, there were people that would argue that what God has done in salvation is that God has known the goodness of some over the evilness of others. But folks, that really, has a, really doesn't find its resting place in the scriptures at all. I think what we, where I hope we come down by the end of this today is with a clear understanding, probably an understanding that you have, but maybe even a more clear understanding of this simple fact that, the, that my salvation was not, uh, it is not credited to me even in the slightest because of who I am. That, that not even a, a fraction of it, right? Not even a percent of it 
has anything to do with who I am, but has everything to do with God in his grace offering goodness to me. Now I'm going to start in kind of what I think is a unique place, but a place that I think is really necessary for us to have a full grasp of what the grace of God means. And that is, I wanna, I wanna first part of our session tonight to be dedicated to what is known as common grace. You've heard that phrase before probably. If you've heard me teach or preach for long, you've heard me at some point talk about common grace. Common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. So it's the goodness of God to those who only deserve punishment, but not the goodness of God that leads to salvation or the goodness of God that ultimately results in salvation. But we must recognize that God does offer grace to all people. And that all people, every person on the planet living today and every person who has ever lived on the planet has received some measure of God's common grace. They've received some measure of his goodness, even though it has not necessarily resulted in their salvation. Everyone has, to some degree or another, experienced the grace of God. I want to kind of make this argument for us. Um, in, in several kind of realms of life, ways that we look out into the world and see the goodness of God to those who only deserve punishment, even though this goodness isn't necessarily bringing about their salvation. Although by the end, you'll see it often does uh, become a contributing factor and leading uh, people to uh, the grace of God, which saves. So let's just look at some examples here. I'm gonna show you some examples of scripture and we'll run through this kind of quickly. First, the physical realm that there are things within the physical realm, this world in which we live in, that is evidence of God's goodness, God's grace to everyone, regardless of who they are. The best example, there's several examples of this in scripture, but the best example of this in scripture actually comes from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching actually about your enemies. He's talking about how we're supposed to love our enemies in Matthew chapter five. And here's the argument that Jesus makes. Jesus makes a common grace argument for the need for people who have experienced the salvific grace of God to actually love those who have not. And here's what he says. He says in Matthew 5 uh, verse 45, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So Jesus's argument for believers showing love to their enemies is even God sends good things like rain and sunshine, right? Onto those who love him and those who don't. And this is a great example of the common grace of God manifested in the physical realm that somebody can be a, you know, a, a, a terrible person who owns a farm right next to a godly person who owns a farm and they probably get the same exact amount of sunshine and the same exact amount of rain that God's not steering the cloud one way and steering it away the other way. And that's not to say God's never steered a cloud one way or another, but it, Jesus is speaking in general terms here that the rain and the sun fall on the what? Just and the unjust. And this is a sign of God's common grace that's manifested in our physical world that everybody in the world receives these 
And the sun and the rain, by the way, are just examples of things that people need, right? People need sun to grow crops. They need water for themselves and for their food, right? These are just basic elements, essential nature of life. And Jesus says, these, these things are good. And they're good because God shows his goodness to all people in this way. The psalmist writes about this in Psalm 145, where he says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. So the, the, the authors of scripture, including Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, make this argument that the grace of God is extended beyond just the people of God. If, and we have to understand what that is, and that's common grace that God's goodness is known to, to all people in the way that he has ordered the physical realm. The second is the intellectual realm. In John 1, 9, John writing about the coming of the light of the Messiah, of the word, he uses multiple metaphors for who Jesus is in John chapter one, says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So you just think about what, what this means. And, and John, John uses light and truth light and word kind of interchangeable here. And, and this, this is enlightenment. This is our ability to, to understand the way things work in the world, to understand one another, the way, the way to communicate with one another, even to the point of understanding God himself. And Jesus didn't come just to give light to some people, which gives light, John says, to everyone. So, so there is a measure of grace that God has given in the intellectual realm that everyone can learn. Now, again, we're talking in, in, in a general sense here because you may be able to pull up, you know, an example and say, well, what about somebody, you know, that, that's, that's extremely mentally handicapped? And I would still be able to make some kind of argument to say, even in that state, they were able to learn to some degree or another that the goodness of God was shown in, in that ability to, to, have, to have knowledge of some kind at all. And where does knowledge come from? It comes from God who gives light to everyone. We think about the moral realm that, that God has established within our hearts that which is good and evil and that he restrains people from being as evil as they could be. Have you ever heard somebody say, if you've been here long, you've heard me say it, because every now and then, particularly when I'm talking about the grace of God, I'll use a phrase like this, you know, but for the grace of God, that would be me. I hope you feel that way sometimes when you're, because we have a tendency, right, as Christians, I think, as, as people who are redeemed and that, that have experienced the goodness of God, Sometimes our flesh will get the best of us and, and will manifest itself in this tendency to look down our noses at really, really bad people. We, we know we're not supposed to do that, right? Let's just all be honest. We know we're not supposed to do that. And yet, sometimes we do it anyway. And here's one of the best checks that you can apply to your flesh. If it weren't for the grace of God, I'd be that guy. That's what I think, by the way, every time I read about a pastor uh, falling into sin and having to be removed from, from his position at his church. Every time I pray, God, but for your grace, that would be me because I, I know my flesh. You know your flesh. Let's just be honest. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, and really that is true of all of humanity, not just of believers, that God has restrained people from being even worse. Things would be worse. 
Could you imagine as bad as things are that things could be worse? If God hadn't extended common grace to the world in Romans chapter two, we read for when Gentiles who do not have the law, but by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, Paul's making an argument about everyone knows that they're guilty, whether they were Jews and received the law or they were Gentile pagans and didn't. And here's his argument. God has written the moral moral law of God on all of our hearts. We know right from wrong from a very early age. We haven't even told these things. It's why every culture in the world has generally outlawed many of the same things. It's why murder is against the law everywhere and has pretty much always been. It's why stealing is against the law and pretty much has always been everywhere. It's why these things that are part of the moral law of God are known to be wrong in our hearts. It's not wrong to say that a lost person can know right from wrong. They absolutely know right from wrong, even if they've never heard from scripture what God has said is right and wrong. Why? Because God has written it in their hearts. Now, the argument that Paul makes in Romans 2 is this makes them all guilty. It makes us all guilty. That, that we're all responsible because God has told us in our hearts what is right and wrong. And we have chosen to do that which is wrong. And one time choosing that which is wrong is an affront to God worthy of separation from, all, from him for all eternity. Right? And so we know this in our hearts, and this is the argument he's making, but we can look at it from the view of the common grace of God and recognize that if God hadn't written that on our hearts, just how bad would things actually be in our world? So God has actually restrained evil in our world by telling people who received the law and who didn't in the core of who we are, that there are some things are right and there are some things who, that are Wrong. Now, yes, there are millions who have given in to debased ways of thinking and have turned over to the ways of this world. And but for the grace of God, the salvific grace of God, that would be us too. But yet we need to recognize that, that the common grace of God has extended to all people around the world in, in the fact that God has shown them what is good. He poses... Jesus poses this question um, in Luke chapter six. Um, he, he poses this question to, to followers who, who are wanting to be proud about the good things they do. And he says, he says in Luke six thirty three, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. People just have a tendency because of what God has impressed upon their hearts through his common grace to do that, which is good. The, the realm of creation, right? God looked at creation and said, this is good. And the natural order that God has established is a good order. The realm of society, societal realm, uh, God has instituted truthfully two things within society, both of which for the common good of people by his common grace. One is the family. The institution of family is for all people. It, it, it's why we don't just honor Christian marriage, but we should honor all marriage that conforms to what the Bible says defines as a marriage. Let me be very clear there. But what the Bible defines as being marriage, by the way, uh, two lost people can be married in the eyes of God. Now they're still lost people, right? But they're still married in the eyes of God. And that marriage is a good thing. 
It, it's for their good. And it's for the good of, if they raise children, it's for the good of their children. Family as the cornerstone of God's institu of societal institution has existed since the very beginning. In both godly, first Jewish, then Christian societies, but, but elsewhere as well. And it is, it is for good. The other part, the other societal, uh, part of the societal realm, institution of God, and some of you may roll your eyes at this, but it's what scripture says, is that government is for our good. Yes, even our government. All governments are for our good. This is the argument of scripture. Romans 13, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So here's what we're told in Romans 13, right? At the beginning of this, God instituted it. You obey it because God instituted it. I'm not gonna read it because it goes on for a while there in Romans 13, but I, go read it later, right? In Romans 13, Paul continues to make this argument. And he basically says this, that the reason God instituted governments in this societal realm is to restrain evil and reward good. Now, are there governments in our world who don't do that? Sure there are. Are there governments in our world that reward evil? and restrain good? Certainly, okay? Nobody's saying that the governments get it right all the time. By the way, Paul was writing this to people living where? In Rome. <laughs> Under a government that did not do this very well at all. And yet, Paul still affirms this biblical truth. So if he can write that in Rome um, and, and affirm to an oppressed people, a persecuted people, that they should still obey the government because in the main, the government restrains evil and rewards the good, then, then we ought to be able to receive this teaching wholeheartedly as well, as well, because regardless of who is in the White House or in the State House now, our government still often do exactly what God has established them to do, and that is, is punish evil and reward good. And when they get it wrong, we should point out when they're, where they're getting it wrong, but we should recognize that government even is the common grace of God. Ultimately, the common grace of God uh, is seen in all of these places, in all of these realms in, in our world, and we see it play out in different people's lives in different ways to different measures. Obviously, uh, governments that are, and let's just use, because that was my last illustration, so let me just keep going there. Governments that are influenced uh, by Christians that are influenced by the teachings of scripture are going to do a better job or hopefully are going to do a better job of rewarding, ev or rewarding good and punishing evil um, than those who are not influenced by those things. So we see this play out to, to varying degrees, but the common grace of God and his special, or th there's two ways of referring to salvific grace, uh, some theologians call it special grace. Some, people, some theologians call it particular grace. And these things influence each other. So as people who have experienced the special particular grace of God influence our world, as we demonstrate what a godly family looks like, as we demonstrate what godly government looks like, as we demonstrate what godly care for the needy and the poor looks like, as we demonstrate these things in our culture and we influence our culture, Christians tend to bring more grace into their societies and more common grace into their societies. Christians have built more hospitals and more schools on this planet than any other people group ever. 
Now, a hospital and a school should not be the ultimate goal, right? Our ultimate goal should always be proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to people as we educate them or as we treat their medical needs or as we, you know, feed the poor or all of these things. But we can recognize, right, that knowledge is part of the common grace of, of God, that medical care part of the common grace of God. And, and who has spread this around the world more than Christians? No one. And why have Christians done this? Christians done this, Christians have done this because we have experienced the special grace of God. And there's this inner connection between it. So God ends up spreading his common grace through those who have experienced his particular grace. Ultimately, we must see that common grace does not save people. It doesn't change hearts. Now, it is enough, by the way, because of the moral law of God written on people's hearts, it is enough to condemn them. It is enough for them to know the difference between right and wrong and to choose to do wrong, and because they choose to do wrong, to spend an eternity separated from God. But we must recognize that the common grace of God is not enough to save people that there must be another expression of uh, God's goodness towards a special group of people, not special because of who they are, but special because what God has done through them. But before we get to that saving grace, let me just give a couple of reasons why God offers common grace. Because you may wonder, well, why, why does God show his goodness in all of these realms for all time. Why has, why has God do that? Well, first, he does it, I believe, to demonstrate his goodness and mercy. That, that people, this, these people who have had the moral law of God written on their hearts should be able to look and see that, that there is a good God because of these things. In Ezekiel 33, 11, we read, um, Say to them, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, obviously this is written to specific people in a specific time, but it shows us a heart that God has, not to condemn the wicked, but to reveal himself in such a way that they would be drawn to him. Ultimately, this is the second and I think the most important reason that God offers common grace because common grace often will lead to will lead people to, towards salvific grace. It will lead people towards salvation. I, I so often have conversations uh, in talking to people about joining our church, part of joining, if, you've, if you're not a member of our church, part of joining our church kind of the last step before we present you for membership is to meet with one of our pastors. And I have the privilege, I really consider a privilege, I like doing as many of these as I can, uh, to have these conversations with people in our church about uh, who want to join our church. And part of that conversation is, because we believe the church is made up of Christians, is tell me how you came to know the Lord. And um, when I talk to adults about that, um, you get different stories. People have all have different lived life experiences, but often people will have trouble looking back and nailing down like this one moment. And we've kind of been conditioned, and I think in some ways rightly so, to, to, to need this, this moment, right? Because I do believe there is a moment. Don't hear me say there's not. I do believe there is a moment that we go from death to life, that we go from having a heart of stone to having a heart of flesh, that we, John 3, are born again. I believe there's this moment. But 
here's why we sometimes struggle with placing that exact moment because of common grace and, and, and special grace and their relationship with one another and how one ultimately ends up kind of leading into other, another. And so the way people will express that is they'll, they'll start to express this period of, of, li- of time in their life where they began to become wise to the things of God. And they began more and more to understand the things of God until they, and they, you know, maybe they don't know to trace it to a specific day or month or for some, maybe even a, a year, but, but they're able to say this, this thing kind of grew in me. And here's what it is that grew in them. This, this transition from the common grace of God to the special grace of God that, that leads people to salvation. In 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10, Peter writes about it. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We have to have a place in our understanding of salvation for a verse like that, for a passage like that, that that's telling us, right, that, that God is working in a process in the lives of people. That's what Peter's saying. And that that, that process of, of transition from the, the goodness of God shown to people in the way that he shows it to all people towards the goodness of God shown to a select group of people in in salvation, the special grace of God is one that takes time. And, and we, sometimes Christians aren't willing to give people time on that. We, we ought to be. And I think this is why God shows his common grace to everyone in the world, because eventually what's going to happen, and again, as a part of the plan of God to save his church, is that that common grace is eventually going to lead to salvation by grace. So here's what I want us to do for the second half of this. We're going to talk about special particular grace and how this really is shown to us in the scripture. And and normally when I teach uh, on Wednesdays, I kind of teach like I did there. I teach kind of thematically. But what I want to do now is I want us to go to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and I'm going to teach expositionally, which if you come here on Sunday mornings, you're very used to because it is the only way that I teach on Sunday mornings, the way that I preach on Sunday mornings. I'm going to try really hard not to preach a sermon to you right now. Um, but I want us to walk through a text together. I'm going to use some other supporting passages. But I want us to walk through a text together um, because I think this text does a, a beautiful job of, of building an argument to the point where Paul ultimately just makes an exclamation. And that exclamation is, we're saved by grace alone. And so if we look at what builds in the text, at the beginning of Ephesians 2, if we look at what builds in that text, asking this question, why does Paul make this exclamation that, that he makes? Um, why is it in, in verse, it's in verse 5 that Paul, at the end of verse 5, Paul exclaims, by grace you have been saved. And that's what it is in the original text. It is an exclamation, Right? Just, it's not really tied to the rest, to what's before it or after it. It's just this, like, you can just almost see him writing it, right? He's making this theological argument. And the spirit just builds him to the point where in big letters, Paul writes, by grace you have been saved. (laughs) And if we ask the question, okay, why did he build to that point of exclamation? We kind of get an understanding of what's happening in special grace, in the grace that, that saves us, right? So let's start with his argument in verse one, in the first couple of verses here, um, which really is an argument for who you were. 
Because you remember back at our definition of, uh, of grace, God's goodness to those who only deserve punishment. So to, to work backwards to understand who we are is to understand that we are people who only deserve uh, punishment. So look at, look at verse 1 in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So this is where, where Paul makes, a, uh, m- makes an, an argument, right? He makes a, a definitive argument of what you, writing to Christians, and Paul's writing Ephesians to Christians, and he's writing this to believers, and he's writing about their former state. And he doesn't say, some of you, Ephesus was made up of Jews and Gentiles. He doesn't say, and some of you were dead in your trespasses and sin. No, he uses uses an inclusive word here, and you, not, not singular you, but plural you, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, when we think about the term dead here, what we have to recognize is that dead means exactly that. It means dead, but he's writing to people who are alive, like physically alive. So clearly Paul isn't writing about their physical life because in their physical life, regardless of how old they are, they've been alive the whole time because outside of a handful of people, Jesus being one of them, Lazarus another, a few other examples in scripture, nobody went from being alive to being dead to being back alive again, all right? And so he's not talking about their physical life. He's talking about spiritual death. And spiritual death is, the, is caused by sin, and those dead in their sin remain so until God ultimately does something. So this is, this is the physical, or this is the spiritual reality that they found themselves in. This is the spiritual reality that we've all found ourselves in, that we were dead because of our trespasses and sin. That's the way that we should think about the relationship between the spiritual reality of death and in the trespasses, in trespasses and sin, in your, in, because of your sin, this is the cause, is a cause and effect. You're dead because of your sin. Elsewhere in Romans 5, Paul writes about this. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he's not just talking about physical death at the end of our lives. Paul's talking both about physical death at the end of our lives that we all experience, but also spiritual death that doesn't happen at the end of our lives, but spiritual death that we have from the beginning of our life. It is an inescapable nature that the former state that he is referring to, their spiritual state, is who they were. It it was the defining characteristic of their lives, whether they knew it or not. They were dead in their trespasses and sin, and that's who we were. Now, think back again to our definition. It is the goodness of God to those who only deserve punishment. And so because of our sin, because of our spiritual state, that is what we deserve. Now go to verse two. He says, he's talking again in that. He says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we were all walking our own way. We were all, and the, the term walked is used several times in, in Ephesians to describe um, you, the pattern of your life and who you were, who they were, who we were before we experienced the saving grace of God is we were people who were following our own 
path and our Lord was not God. Our Lord was the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, right? So uh, our, our, our God was our flesh. Our God was our own desires. Ultimately, we were being led around by the nose, uh, by the enemy of God, believing his lies. This is, this is who we are. And he was at work in us just as he is currently at work in the sons of disobedience. And his goal is to keep dead people dead. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan's desire is to keep dead people dead and to keep them going after things of the flesh and to doing the things that they want to do. Now, because of that, because we were following our own path and not following God's path, that's why we deserved punishment. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So again, he stresses, we all once lived. Sometimes I'll interact with people about Ephesians chapter 2 and they'll think, oh yeah, that's describing somebody, but it's not describing me. And you want to know who those people are? Most of the time, nearly every time I've had a conversation with somebody about Ephesians chapter 2 that didn't think Ephesians chapter 2 applied to them were people that grew up in church. You can see how they get there, right? Well, I've kind of always known what's good and what's not. I've kind of always practiced this morally, you know, somewhat moral good life. These are people who kind of grew up around things of the faith, but never embraced things of the faith. And what they've ultimately become is people who may be able to identify the sins of others without actually recognizing that they have sinned themselves. But, but notice what he says. We all once lived like this, all doing what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it. All only caring, uh, caring about our body and our mind. We did what feels good. This is who we were. He ends that verse, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, what does it mean to be a child of wrath? It means that we deserve punishment, right? This is who we are. So for people who kind of argue against this idea of grace alone and argue for some type of um, you know, pedigree of faith that I, I now get to be a part of simply because of who I am. We, we need to recognize our genealogical lineage only leads to one place. <laughs> our genealogical lineage only leads to us being children of wrath. That's as far as it goes. The only thing I inherited from my parents was sin. It's the only thing you inherited from yours too, spiritually speaking. It's the only thing we inherited, right? In a, in a, in a real sense from birth was sin and the judgment of, of death. And this is who we are, children of wrath. And because of that hardness of heart, God is storing up wrath. Romans 2 says God is storing up wrath for us on the, on the day of judgment. And it'll be revealed to us. This is who we were, right? So we kind of started at the back end of the definition. This was who we are. But God, grace through God's grace, he brings spiritual life. Look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. And it is here that Paul exclaims, by grace, you have been saved. 
So we walk through verses four and five, and from the perspective of death, and this is who we were, if you're not in Christ, it's who you are, but he's writing to Christians, so he's using past tense. So I'm, gonna, I'm speaking, I always teach on Wednesday nights like I'm speaking to Christians, so I'm, I'm speaking to Christians. This is who you were, right? So let's just kind of walk through this. But God, so God becomes the main player here, that even though everything else is true, even though you are dead in your trespasses and sin, even though you are going after the, the, the ways of this world, you're only seeking to, to, to serve your own flesh, uh, you're, you're a child of wrath. Even though all of these things are true, God is about to do something. So God becomes the, the primary one and only actor in this story here, that God is about to do something. And we're told why he's about to do something. We're going to get, be given his motive, right? There's really two sides of the motives of God here in verse four, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, mercy is God's goodness to those in distress. It's very similar to grace. Grace is the goodness of God given to those who only deserve punishment. Mercy is God's goodness to those in distress. It, it relates to compassion and pity. It relates to God's perspective. When we see the word mercy, particularly in the New Testament, that's what we need to think. We need to think compassion. That God looked upon us and had compassion. Now we're told why God looked upon us and has compassion because of his great love. Again, he didn't look on you and have compassion on you because you were special or I was special in and of ourselves. He looked upon us and had compassion because we, because he loved us. Because that's who he is. He is love. And so God is about to do something here because he looked upon us with compassion. He had mercy on us. And the reason he did that was because of love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, which means, and this is, this is the most profound thing, I think. It gets me every time. That what Paul is saying here in verse five, again, four and five switch perspectives. It switched to the perspective of God, right? Verses one through three is all about what we did. How, how, how we're dead and, and how we're dead because of our sin. And it switches perspectives in four and it's gonna tell us what God's gonna do. God has this great mercy and has this great love, but notice the, the setting of his great mercy and love is in verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Now, this is the part that gets me. I, I want you to hear it. At my very worst, and you know the only person who knows my very worst is me. The only person who knows your very worst is you. If we're just all honest, and, and listen, I hope you have good relationships with people, good relationships with your spouse. If you have a spouse, good relationships with people in your small group, other people in your church, where you talk about your own sin and you talk, like we need that. That It's instructed in scripture. We need those kind of people that are holding us accountable and and calling us to good works and calling us to live lives of faith. But let's just be honest. Our, our very worst, I'm the only person alive that knows Ryan Bryce at his very worst. You're the only person alive that knows you at your very worst, probably, outside of rare circumstances. But in this moment right now, every time I read this passage, I think of that. I think of who I am, who I know at, in, my, in my deepest, darkest moment of sin, God. God was compassionate towards me and loved me. And here's what he did. He made me alive. 
I went from being dead to being alive. And that's where Paul exclaims, by grace you have been saved. Even when you were dead, at your very deadest, (laughs) he made you alive. This is what it means when we say we are saved by grace alone. This is why to be saved by anything but grace alone is contrary to the teachings of scripture. It's why the, the Protestant Reformation was founded on this idea and it's why we would still proclaim it 500 years later. Because at my very worst, there couldn't have been anything good that God saw in me. At your very worst, there couldn't have been anything good that God saw in you. But what does God do? He saves us. He saves us. So we have to see this connection of God's grace to, to God's mercy and love. We don't deserve God's mercy and love, and yet he gives it to us. He shows us his goodness even when all we deserve is punishment. All we deserve is to still be dead in our trespasses and sin. And yet God looked at us in our very worst moment and gave us mercy and love and caused us to be made alive. He continues in verse six and seven. Again, it's what surrounds it is what helps us to understand grace. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So the goodness of God that he shows towards those who only deserve punishment isn't just to bring us to a place of neutrality, but it's to bring us to a place where we will forever and always experience the grace of God, the goodness of God. This is is the argument that Paul makes, that he has raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That what we experience now and what we have yet to experience in eternity is just an outpouring of the continual goodness of God offered to us so we can understand his grace. That grace just abounds more and more and more. To the point where in Romans, Paul kind of asks a rhetorical question. He's talking about the grace of God. And somebody asks him, he kind of asks a question that I think people ought to sometimes, like the logical conclusion, right? Is if, is if the more I have sinned, the more I really understand, the more I recognize my sin, the more I understand grace. So Paul asks this like rhetorical question. He's like, well, do we just go on sinning then? <laughs> because if the more I sin and the more I recognize my sin, the more I understand grace, should I just go on sinning? Paul says, no, don't do that. That's silly, right? But we can kind of see where the question comes from, right? Because the more I recognized just how, how lost I was, the, the, the more abundantly I experience and understand the grace of God. Now, that's not an excuse to go on sinning. Don't use it as an excuse to go on sinning. Recognize, though, that for, for always, we're going to experience the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That what God has in store for us for eternity is his grace. And I'll come back to that when, when we get to the why this mattered 
Because one of the things they were, I'm just going to say it in case I forget. I won't forget, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the things they were dealing with in the Reformation period was a doctrine of purgatory. That there was a place that you would go later to finish paying off your sin in this world. Now, you see how this doesn't jive with Ephesians chapter 2? Because what does God have in store for those who are saved? He has in store for them immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. <laughs> this, is, this is pretty good news, isn't it? That what God has in store for us is more of the same that we have already experienced from him. And this, this is, there, there's so much in verses six and seven that I really have, have time to deal with. I mean, we're, we're looking at themes of resurrection here. We're looking at themes of, of continual reign of Christ and us reigning with him. We're, we're, we're just, what we're going to experience can't be put really into even words. And what we're even experiencing now, that, that what God continues to show us now and not yet is just an outpouring of his grace to us. We are experiencing in a limited way now what we will experience more completely later. Let me end with this thought. Every time I read Ephesians 2, it, it, it's a thing for me, right? Because I, 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 that, that idea of just at my very worst, that's when God still had love and compassion, showed mercy towards me. Um, how I understand that now will pale in comparison to how I understand it one day. And, and this is really the ultimate, understand, the ultimate thing about grace that we need to wrap our minds around. We, we're going to grow in our understanding of that for eternity, I believe. You're gonna keep growing in this life as you've probably already done. And I believe will into eternity, understanding just how much you didn't deserve it just how much I don't deserve the goodness of God shown to me who only deserves punishment and just how much you don't deserve the goodness of God shown to you who only deserve punishment will only become more clear. It's not going to become less clear. That's not going to fade away. It's gonna just become more and more clear as God continues to lavish his goodness upon us. As we recognize, I did nothing to deserve this. That's what it means to be to recognize that we are saved by grace alone. So I, I got just a couple of minutes. So I, I, I wanna help us. Cause I already used, I used one example, you know, of people that maybe grew up in church and like, I, I struggle to see when I was ever dead in my trespasses and sin. And maybe that was you, maybe, maybe you struggle to, to see that. Um, we got, we got to recognize if we're in Christ, then all of Ephesians 2 is about us or none of Ephesians 2 is about us. And we need to help people see that. And this is one of the reasons that we do equip. Equip isn't just doctrinal instruction, right? Equip is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And part of the work of ministry is doctrinal instruction. But, but I need you to... For us to help people, we, we have to begin by helping people understand that they're dead and their trespasses and sin. And, and helping a dead person recognize their deadness is not always the easiest thing to do. 
It's going to require us to, to love our enemies. It's going to require us to be good towards people. It's going to require us to show the goodness of God towards people. It's going to require us to be patient with people as God is patient with people. We've become a very impatient society. We've become a society that, that lives in just quips, little phrases on, you know, if you can't, you know, if you can't fit it above, it used to be if you couldn't fit it above the fold, right? That was the old newspaper term. That the important stuff had to be above the fold. Now it has to be above the expand button on Facebook. Tell me I'm lying. I mean, that, that's the way we've shortened everything in life. We're, we're so, and it's, it's made us a very impatient people. You're not going to convince somebody in 144 characters that they're dead and they're trespasses and sin. It's not. It's going to become because it's going to come because you show goodness and grace to them. The goodness of God that was extended to you to them time and time again. Sometimes maybe for years. And maybe this is just the encouragement some of you need for these lost people who have been in your life. Maybe they're family members, people that that have been there for for a year. Keep showing the goodness of God to them because God has shown His goodness to you. And recognize that if it wasn't for the special grace of God enacted in your life, that you would still be lost right there alongside of them. And so we need to help people to see this. We are bringing people patiently alongside the Holy Spirit who is at work in their lives, believing the Holy Spirit is working in their lives, patiently bringing them to the place where they recognize that there is nothing good about them. Nothing. But God loved them anyway and offers to them the ability to be alive for the first time in life. So let me pray for us. We'll be done tonight. Father, we thank you. You've made us alive. That even in our worst, darkest moment, your mercy and kindness were shown to us because of your great love towards us. And that you made us alive together with Christ Jesus exalted us with him and that we will live this life and we will live eternity experiencing your goodness towards us. Oh, what a good God we serve. Thank you, God, for your goodness in our world. Help us to be examples of that goodness. Let us be a church and a people that spread the grace of God to others and help them patiently to see just how good you are and the offer of salvation to them, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So again, thank you for being here tonight. Next week, if you missed the very beginning, next week we're going to go in directly into the doctrine of uh, faith, faith alone, and then the following week I'll, I'll combine grace and faith and to kind of do kind of the historical and modern perspective of why this is so important. I told you they were gonna overlap. I touched on it a little bit today. So thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us online. God bless you.